Pilgrim's Progress is regarded to be the first novel ever published in the English language. And its author, John Bunyan, wrote it under some quite unique and harsh circumstances. He served in the English Civil War for three years, after which he converted to Christ. And then he started preaching Christ in the small town of Bedford. But after the monarchy was restored in England in 1660, all those who did not conform to the Church of England were persecuted. The Church of England had in many ways become a corrupt religious organization, not too unlike the Roman Catholic Church. Bunyan was a Puritan, however, and he was simply being faithful to preach the the unadulterated word of God. But for that, he was arrested. He was sentenced to three months in prison. Afterward, he would be released, but only if he vowed to stop preaching the word. That he could not do. He refused And so he remained in prison for 12 years. He could basically walk out any day. He just had to promise to stop preaching God's word. But he would always say back to them, if you let me out today, I will preach again tomorrow. It wasn't until 1672 when the king eased up on nonconformists that Bunyan was finally released. He went back to preaching right away. He was again arrested and thrown back in jail three years later for preaching And it was during that second imprisonment that Bunyan finished up his classic work, Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan's novel ended up being quite a unique work with unique circumstances, but his testimony is not unique. Countless other preachers and countless other nations have been mistreated, beaten, imprisoned, even killed, all for the simple crime of preaching God's word. This has been happening since the beginning of the church itself. Think of the Apostle Paul, for example. After coming to Christ, he gave his entire life to the ministry of the gospel, dearly sacrificing of himself so that people who are far away could hear the good news of Christ. But how did most receive him? Most of the time, he was rejected, and others being filled with anger over his message, they would run him out of town, beat him up, throw him in prison. This would happen to him countless times. And this has been the all too common reaction to God's word for the past 2,000 years. So what gives? Why do so many people hate the preaching of God's word? Why does it make some people so angry that they lash out with, with anger and violence, even murder? Well, the answer has to do with the function of God's word, especially God's word preached. Think of, for example, Hebrews Hebrews 4.12, which says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word judges us. It reveals all the sin and indwelling wickedness that we try and hide to save face. But especially when God's word is preached, it shines a spotlight right on our hearts and cuts us open. That's what preaching is supposed to do, though. Remember also 2 Timothy 4.2, where Paul tells Timothy, Timothy to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, Biblical preaching is supposed to rebuke people and reprove people at times. That's for our good, though. Like a surgeon's scalpel, the word cuts us open. 
It exposes our cancer that it might be removed, that we might be healed. Though painful, this is a good thing. So both in salvation and sanctification, God's word is instrumental. It can be a painful process sitting under the convicting preaching of the word, where it feels like the preacher is targeting you as if he's cutting your heart out. He's not. That's just God's word doing what it does. And you know what, though? One mark of a true believer is that he or she accepts this. They don't hide from this. The true believer embraces the conviction that comes from the word of God, especially the word preached. Even though it stings sometimes because we're all still sinners, the true disciple receives God's word, accepts it with humility, and embraces it because he or she knows this is God's means of sanctifying them and helping them overcome their sin, which is what they desperately want to do. And so they're, they're happy to be cut open, and they delight in God's word being applied to their hearts because they know that by this they will grow and be healed. The unbeliever, however, hates the words of God, especially when the word is preached. And what is faithful preaching, after all, but the delivery of God's word right to the heart of a person? And if you have a person who's still living in open rebellion against God and, and hates God's ways— They're not going to like that. They will react against it, usually hating the message and the messenger. And that's because, as Christ himself said, the darkness hates the light. And they will not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But when the word is preached, you see, the light comes to them. A spotlight shines right on their heart, but they can't have that. So instead of humbling themselves and accepting the word of God, They get angry and do whatever they can to snuff out the word. You know, in a sense, we expect this reaction from those who are lost. But you know what? This response is also one of the surest signs of a false believer. The false believer's true colors are revealed by their response and reaction to God's word. Instead of being like a moth to the flame drawing near to the light of the word. They're like the cockroach. And when the light turns on, they run for the shadows. They don't want the light shining on all the dark spots that the hidden sins are trying to to keep. I mean, think of ancient Israel, for example. God's people, and yet what did they do? They killed all the prophets. These were God's messengers sent to them to give them good news, to warn them, sometimes tell of judgment, but at the same time, always good news at the offer of life through repentance. And the Jews should have welcomed these messengers in the name of their own God and heeded their message. But almost always, they did not. They killed the prophets, including the greatest prophet of all, the Messiah, Christ himself. This response is still common today. Many so-called Christians, they warm uh, pews in churches, but they're often proven false by their same lack of love for his word. They they don't want to come near it. They don't want the conviction. They don't want the, the heat turned up on their sin because they're still living for their sin, serving their sin, and enslaved to it. This doesn't mean such people won't go to church. It just means they won't go to a church that faithfully preaches the whole counsel of God's word. 
They'll go to an ear-tickling church where sin is never mentioned and the convicting power of God's word is jettisoned. And Paul himself prophetically warned of this. And I read 2 Timothy 4 too. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And he says next, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves preachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn aside their ears from the truth and will turn aside toward myth. You know, one's reception and reaction and response to God's word has always been one of the the telltale signs or dividing lines between the true disciple and the false disciple. This is important teaching, which already in itself, it's convicting. And James, the half-brother of the Lord, he wants to make sure we understand this. He wants to make sure we understand this and that we are among those who rightly receive the word of truth, that we're not those who push it away, who keep it out, but we we welcome it in to our lives. This is one of the the core lessons found in his epistle, and we're going to find it beginning this morning in James chapter 1. You can open your Bibles now to James chapter 1. James writes to show us what true faith is looks like. So James is not a heavily doctrinal letter per se, but he's calling us to possess and live out a living faith. But it's not hard to gather. He was concerned that many Christians in his audience, these Jewish Christians who were scattered abroad, many of them did not have so much of a a living faith. Many had perhaps a, a dead faith, a false faith. And for some, their false faith was revealed by their response to trials. It would fall away. We've studied that extensively, verses 1 through 18 so far. But now coming to verse 19, James transitions away from the subject of responding to trials and now comes to the subject of responding to the truth. Just the bigger issue of how you respond to God's word in general. This is the bigger issue because and you have a person struggling with their faith because of trials, they really have a bigger issue going on. The bigger issue is they don't take God at his word. They don't receive his word. They don't accept what he says. I've counseled many people like this. You might expose them to the, the powerful teaching of the word when it comes to God's plan and purposes in our trials Though we may suffer, he's still good. He's working all things out for good for those who love him. And and he's even conforming us to the image of his son in our trials. These are all good things. And in them, we should rejoice. And, And intellectually, a person might understand this, but their heart remains closed. They don't accept this teaching. They don't accept God's word. They don't take him at his word. And this is their bigger problem. This is why they they continue to suffer. So James now turns to this bigger problem. And he's going to spend several chapters on it. In general, he's going to tell us about the right and wrong responses to the truth of God's word. For example, I bet you all know verse 22 of chapter 1. 
where he tells us to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. We talk about the right response to the word. It's not enough to hear it. You have to you know, actually do this and live it out. We'll get to that passage next week. But first, today, we're verses 19 through 21. And you see, before you can apply the word to your life and live it out, which we're going to hear a lot about later, but first, you have to accept the word into your heart. In essence, James first calls us to lower the walls of our pride and allow God's word to enter in, to enter the, the castle of your heart. Let it convict you, knowing it's coming to you as a friend. It's not an enemy trying to, to take you down or to harm you. It's a friend to your soul. It will change you from the inside out, but, but first you have to let it in, so to speak. Before you can live out God's word, you have to first embrace it, submit to it, and really open your heart to it. This is the message of James 1, 19 through 21. And why don't we read the passage now before we take a closer look at it. James 1, 19 through 21. He says, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for... The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. This is a short passage. It's a passage where I bet most times we would just kind of read over this and just move on without giving it a second thought. But in James's flow in his argument. This is an essential passage. We can't proceed further without understand, understanding what he's trying to tell us here about receiving the word implanted. And so let's, let's do that. And let's find from James two fundamental relationships to God's word that we must have. Two fundamental relationships to God's word that we must have. And the first is you must rightly react to the word. You must rightly react to the word. I'll explain as we go, but look back at verse 19. He says, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, I think this is another well-known verse in James. It's like a wisdom verse. There are many similarities between James and the book of Proverbs. They both dish out God's wisdom. And this verse seems to be just like a, a good general wisdom verse. This verse seems like it could come straight out of Proverbs. In fact, Proverbs would agree with this teaching on speech and anger. Proverbs 13.3, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who open, opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 14.29, he who is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. In Proverbs 17, 27, and 28, he who restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's considered prudent. So this is just pure wisdom, which I trust we get. 
The person who is hasty in speech is going to dig themselves into a hole sooner or later. Better to just remain silent and, and listen and think before you speak. Like Mark Twain said, it's better, to be, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Or as the ancient Jewish rabbis observed, this is why we have two ears which are always open, ready to receive instruction, and one tongue which is hedged in by a double row of teeth to keep it shut. So do more listening than speaking. This is general wisdom. Think before you speak. And I think especially in today's world of social media, it's a lesson people need to be reminded of. People have always been short-tempered and quick to mouth off. The difference is that today when you do that online, Twitter, Instagram, millions of people could potentially see your little outburst and you can't take it back. And so it seems like every week in the news, another high-profile politician or CEO or actor or whatever, they're fired because of something they said in haste online. Hence, Proverbs 29 verse 20 would say, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And when you know what Proverbs says about fools, that's pretty bad. In contrast to this, I love the practice of Abraham Lincoln. I've mentioned this before, but he would write what he would call hot letters. For example, during the Civil War, one of his generals, George Meade, he had Robert E. Lee's Confederate army defeated, cornered, trapped. And if he had just continued the advance and moved in, he would have captured their army and ended the Civil War. But he didn't. He delayed and he let Lee escape. It's one of the, the greatest military blunders in, in our history. And it prolonged this bloody war. And when Lincoln found out that his general blew it, he could have ended the war and he just let him escape. He was furious. And so he wrote Meade a scathing letter, just tearing into him for his blunder. But Lincoln never sent that letter. This was his practice. Whenever he was angered by the failures of others, his subordinates, he would write a hot letter to vent his frustrations, kind of let it all out. But he understood that such rash words would do more harm than good. They would not help the situation. So he would then burn these letters or seal them away. Then he would write a second letter, which was far more gracious to actually deal with the situation at hand. And I think that's just biblical wisdom put into practice, lived out. Be quick to hear, slow to speak slow to anger. This is general wisdom that we all need to apply. And, and on the surface, James 1.19, that's how it appears, general wisdom that we all need to apply. But not so fast. When you look a little more carefully at this verse, verse 19, you find there's it's actually more going on. And I believe actually that James is not giving us merely general wisdom, although that, that stands, that's, that's all throughout scripture, you know, guard your tongue and so forth. But I think he's giving us something very specific here. I believe verse 19 is dealing not just generally with our reaction to anything in life, but specifically with our reaction to God's word. So in other, in other words, in verse 19, when he says, be quick to hear, he means be quick to hear the word. 
and be slow to hastily react against it. Why do I believe this? Well, I think it's actually clear the context narrows down the focus of verse 19. The beginning of verse 19, he says, This you know, my beloved brethren. Know what? And this phrase is best taken as an indicative, meaning it, just, it looks back to verse 18. James is building off of what he just reminded them of, namely that in the exercise of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. As we learned last time, that speaks of the new birth, that God raised us to new spiritual life. He saved us, but by what in verse 18? By the word of truth. By the word of truth. And with that word, James introduces a key word for the next passage. And the word is word. James is going to pick up on the word word. And the next several verses build a theme like like verse 21. But he says, receive the word implanted. Verse 22, prove yourselves doers of the word. Verse 23, he addresses those who are merely hearers of the word and not doers. And so he's building a theme of the word, how we relate and respond to the word. And I believe verse 19 is right in the middle of all that, that he's still talking about the word. His audience, his beloved brethren, they know the truths of verse 18. James reminds them that by God's will, he made us new in Christ. And God did so by the word. They know the transforming power of the word. And God uses the same word to continue to transform us. In sanctification, right? They know this too. But for the word to continue to transform them, for them to be sanctified, they must rightly react to it. They must not hastily reject it or be incited by it, but they need to receive it. Whatever it is, even if it's a painful or convicting, they need to receive it. And this, I believe, is the admonition James is, is actually giving in verse 19, something more specific. And with this in mind, when you look again at verse 19, Its specific meaning comes into sharper focus. He says first, be quick to hear. Quick to hear what? Just anything in general? Well, although we believe in that general wisdom, we looked at Proverbs. No, I believe James, by context, is telling us more specifically here, be quick to hear the word. The same word of truth that he mentioned in the previous verse. Be quick to hear the word. And this is the first reaction we all need to learn. Be quick to hear the word. James is calling us to listen attentively and eagerly to the word of truth. Close your mouth, open your ears, and more importantly, open your heart to God's word. This is a call to not resist God's word as it comes to you. Today, you might hear God's word preached or you might read it for yourself But either way, don't approach the word with your defenses up. Don't wall off your heart to the truth, but open up, open up to it. There are times usually when we're guarding some sin in our life that we bar God's word from entering our hearts. Maybe you're listening to a sermon and you feel that the tiny tug of your conscience convicting you, 
But like a cell phone interrupting a movie, you quickly silence it because you don't want that thing bugging you. You don't want to be convicted right now. You don't want your conscience acting up. So you turn it off. This, needless to say, is the wrong reaction. Instead, be quick to hear. Let it in. He also says, be slow to speak. This is not talking about literally speaking more slowly. That, that's what I get all the time. This is rather talking about not quickly reacting to what has been heard. This is a call for restraint, to not hastily respond to the word of truth, even if it challenges you, challenges what you believe or how you live. Listen to it. Just process it without a knee-jerk response. The word for this today would be triggered. You know, we sadly live in a culture that you know, really trains people to massively overreact to the smallest of offenses. But you get this even the church or in the church when, especially when people are confronted with the truth of God that opposes the culture. For example, you could spend an hour calmly, rationally, lovingly studying the Bible with someone and, and telling them, for example, that, you know, the, God's word still says that homosexuality is it's still a sin. But afterward, they might respond, well, that just can't be true. A loving God wouldn't be like that. And you want to say back to them, like, you know, were you even listening? Did you not just read all those verses? It's crystal clear. But no, the person wasn't listening. Most are so filled with their preconceived notions that when they come to the word, they're not really listening to the word. In fact, instead of listening, I think a lot of people come speaking in the sense that as they hear the word, they're, they're just busy formulating a response as to why they don't have to, to believe that or, or, or live that way. It's like two people in an argument. And instead of listening to each other, they're really, as the other person is talking, they're formulating their response. Like, okay, when they're done, what am I going to say next to, to win this battle? That argument is going to go nowhere. But that's how many approach God's word. They don't come just to sit at the feet of Jesus and, and learn from it. They come to use it, and they will make God's word say whatever they want it to say. But when others challenge them on that or, or push back, they will be quick to talk back, and they will be quick to get angry. You can see, I'm sure, how this relates to anger. In an argument, when one side realizes they can't win with words, what usually comes next? An outburst of anger. And so it goes with the word of truth. Some hastily reject the truth of God's word. So they talk back, they lash out. But if they can't get through with words, an outburst of anger is not far behind. But as verse 20 says, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Man's anger is, is an unrighteous anger. There is such a thing as a righteous anger, but I would say, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time, our anger is selfish and vile and unrighteous. That's because most of the time we are incited to rage, not because God's glory was offended or, or his name was slandered, but because someone offended us or wronged us or, you know, did something to our kingdom. That's unrighteous anger. And that anger does not achieve God's righteousness, which simply means it doesn't match up to the righteous life God has for us. And James knows that we are made righteous 
by the justifying work of Christ, by grace, through faith. But after that, are we not called to live righteously, to live out the righteousness we've been given in Christ? And the point is, man's anger does not fit with that. This is the same unrighteous indignation that Christ was met with. You might recall, for example, John 8, 58, preaching to the Jews. And he said to them, before Abraham was born, I am. And the next verse says, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. Now, talk about a hasty reaction. Talk about a knee-jerk response to the word of truth of just anger. Now, granted, Jesus was making a big claim, but he's also the guy who's been like healing lepers and curing the blind. So you think they would have just, you know, heard him out a little bit more. If they had done so, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But no, they would not listen to the word of truth because they were captivated by their own sin, their own self and selfishness. And I'll tell you the same negative reaction to the word still happens today where people shut down and then even oppose it, get angry with it. How do you react to the word of truth, especially when it convicts you or challenges you? Do you accept it or reject it? Do you hit the silence button on your heart and just shut down? And maybe you're there sitting, you listen to a sermon and it gets too real for you maybe and your mind just checks out. As a preacher, looking at people, I see that happen. I remember being a college pastor, and there are times when, in God's Word, just the heat turns up on sin, and you can just see some faces where they're checking out. They don't want to receive conviction, and they just go into this mode of in one ear, out the other. They almost make themselves be distracted, so they don't have to just sit and listen because the Word is, is cutting them open, but they want to keep their sin. They don't like that. Has this ever been you? Heed this call to rightly react to the word. Don't come to God's word with your shields up, ready to to fight off any word that enters in as if it's an enemy trying to take you down. But recognize these are the words of life. They come to heal you, to bind you, to rebuild you. Understand your sinful flesh, my sinful flesh hates this. Your flesh wants you to plug your ears and not listen to anything. And that's because the word of truth is shining a spotlight right into your heart. And there's no place for sin to hide. That's uncomfortable. But it's also good, isn't it? I mean, don't you want to fight the flesh? Isn't that your real enemy, the enemy of your soul? So you should welcome any any ally who enters in to help you fight the war within. So listen to James. Make this your reaction to the word of truth. Don't turn away from it. Don't put up your walls, but be quick to hear the word and slow to react against it. And this is going to lead you to number two now. You must rightly receive the word. You must rightly react to the word. You must rightly, secondly now, receive the word. Look at verse 21. He says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now notice verse 21 begins with therefore. So again, he's making a connection to what he just said. 
which only affirms that he, he's still talking about our reaction and reception to the word of truth. Therefore, instead of rejecting the word, instead of closing yourself off to the word and getting angry with it, plugging your ears, instead, receive the word. Receive the word implanted. Notice, what's the function of the word implanted here? He says it's able to save your souls. James is using save in the fullness of the term, which means uh, the, the holistic deliverance from sin, past, present, future. You know, Scripture speaks of our salvation as past, present, future. In the past, when we came to Christ, we were delivered from the penalty of sin. In the future, in glory, we will be delivered from the, the presence of sin. And right now, we are being delivered from the power of sin. This is the, the, the full orb salvation, this total deliverance from sin, past, present, future. And it all comes, though, by what? By the word of truth. God's grace working through the word of truth. That word of truth, that's what brought us to life to begin with, right? Verse 18, we, we learn that. New divine life was implanted in us. But it comes in seedling form when we're made alive and God wills for it to grow. You need to be sanctified. But can you guess how that happens too? By the same word of truth. So this is why you must continue to receive God's word implanted. It's not enough just to believe the gospel at salvation. Okay, I'm done. No, we need to continually, daily, always be receiving the word. By it, we will be saved, past, present, future, just entirely saved. This is what we're talking about here. And so he means, when he says to receive uh, the word, he means to really let it sink in. We're not talking about reading a few chapters in your Bible and checking off your reading list. We're talking about you're, you're in it, you're saturating it in your heart, and you're, you're letting it affect you. You're taking it in. And this really is no different from what we learned a few weeks ago about how to grow in salvation. How do you grow? Renew your mind. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Saturate yourself with the word of God, and by it, you will grow. It's the same thing. In the soil of your heart, a little sapling of new life has formed by God's creative power, but it it needs to continue to grow, and that happens by watering it. That's, that's the part God has given us to do. We can't make it grow, per se. That's God's work and will. But he calls us to do one thing, and that's to water, to water the, the, the good plant. You must foster the transforming power of the word in your life and let it do its work. At the same time, though, you also have to beware of weeds. If you've ever had a garden bed filled with weeds, you know they effectively choke out the good crop you're trying to grow. They stunt the growth of your crop. So first, you need to pull the weeds. And this is why James tells us first in, James, or in verse 21 to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Don't let sin grow in your life or it will stunt your growth in the Lord. You know, if you've ever heard of the put-off, put-on rubric in Scripture, this is actually just the same thing that James is talking about here. For example, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, Paul says, 
that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You see, in salvation, you have put off the old self and you have put on a new self. You're a new creature. But at the same time, as James tells us, some residual wickedness remains. That although we're a new creature, we still have the lusts of the flesh. Remember that? And so we now must work to kill them. We've got to pull those weeds. We must put all those sins off while all the while being renewed in our mind. This is what God has given us to do. Like dirty clothes, just take off that behavior. That's, that's not who you are in Christ anymore. So put off that behavior and put on Christ. Live out the righteousness of Christ. And so Paul similarly says in Colossians 3, 8, and 12, he says, now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. But put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Peter says the same thing, 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. He says, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And even the author of Hebrews chimes in, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. He says, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Peter, Paul, Hebrews, James, they're all saying the same thing. To put off your sin, to put on Christ by renewing your mind. This is how we grow. Lay aside any residual sin via repentance and then receive the word. Pull out weeds, water the crop, and you will grow. That's how God grows us in respect to salvation. And notably here, James says, lay aside any filthiness. That word just speaks of moral uncleanness. So just think, is there any immorality still in your life according to God's standard? And if there is, Realize it's keeping you from God. It's keeping you from growing. It's keeping you from joy. Pull that weed, repent, turn away. What's interesting is this word for filthiness is related to a word that speaks of wax building up in your ear, which I think is a very fitting picture of sin. If you leave sin unchecked, it's going to build up and grow and grow, and it will clog your hearing. It will prevent you from hearing the word of God. And if you've ever found that, well, maybe like while you're in sin, it's really hard to read the Bible. That's on purpose. You are just tasting a a small bit of the hardening effect of sin. And so pull those weeds while they're small. Turn aside from wickedness. Put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. And instead, put on humility. He says in verse 21, basically, and in humility, that's the put on, receive the word implanted. 
you know, we can't change ourselves. We can't make ourselves grow. That's the function of God's word implanted. Our job, therefore, is just to receive the word implanted, to renew our minds with the word. And as the word comes in, then we will bear the fruit of the spirit. So if that's our job, if our job is merely to renew our minds, well, then the chief virtue needed for that is humility. That's why he says, in humility, receive the word. You think of the times when you may have rejected the word or its conviction. Why? Pride. Pride is what keeps us from rejecting the word. Our flesh wants to serve and defend self. But only with humility will you recognize that you need to change. You need to grow. You need to be confronted. You need to be challenged, as do I. This is an attitude of meekness, not weakness, where you accept the fact that you don't have all the answers. You don't know everything. You're not perfectly holy. Therefore, maybe you should close your mouth and open your ears and listen to God and his word. Maybe learn a thing or two from God and his word. In humility, submit to him. Bow down to him, knowing he cares for you. And, and when his word comes to the entrance of your heart, in humility, you're going to open the gates and let it in because you know it, it's coming to, to change you. Maybe do some house cleaning, but it's going to leave you cleaner, holier, stronger. And so you will let it in. In humility, receive the word implanted. Was this not the response of the Bereans, which is our namesake? So you should know this, right? Paul showed up town after town. And how did most of the Jews respond to the word of truth? They did not receive it in humility, but they rejected it in pride. They didn't want to change. They were set in their ways. They wanted to serve themselves. And they ended up rejecting their own Messiah. But Acts 17.11, Paul shows up to Berea and it says they were more noble-minded. Why? Because they received, same word for received, by the way, they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. You see, they were not quick to speak. They were not quick to anger. Rather, they were quick to listen. They heard Paul out. They considered his word, comparing it with the word. And what do you know? Verse 12 says that many of them came to salvation. You see, in humility, they were open to God's word and it led them to eternal life. And so it goes with us. The word of truth is God's means for our salvation and our sanctification. So receive it. Let it do its work. Don't let another sermon go by lost in one ear, out the other. Don't waste another Bible reading time where your mind wanders because your heart is closed. But in humility, receive the word implanted. Do you remember the prophet Micaiah? Probably not, but I love this story. It's in 1 Kings 22. There's a little time of peace between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And so they decided to team up against the Arameans. So Jehoshaphat, king of Judah in the south, came together with Ahab, king of Israel in the north. They gathered together. Ahab also gathered 400 prophets 
to inquire of the Lord whether they should go into battle. And all 400 said, yes, go up, you will succeed. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not a prophet of Yahweh that we may inquire of him? See, Ahab's 400 prophets, they were all compromised prophets. They served many gods. Jehoshaphat wanted an exclusive prophet of Yahweh only. And so Ahab replied, 1 Kings 22, 8. He says, there is yet one man by whom we, we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah. I love this. Now, why did Ahab hate Micaiah? Well, because he always told him the truth. He just always told him God's truth. And since Ahab was an extremely wicked king, the truth always confronted him and convicted him. And instead of submitting to the truth and changing, he just rejected it and hated Micaiah. Well, Jehoshaphat presses anyway, and so Ahab is forced to call Micaiah. So Micaiah is summoned. He eventually stands before the two kings, and he eventually prophesies God's word to them about the battle. He says this in verse 17. He says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. And then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Basically, Micaiah said to Ahab, you know, if you go into battle, you're going to die. There'll be sheep without a shepherd, meaning you're going to die. You're not going to leave this battle alive. Now, Ahab had a chance right then and there. He had a chance to humble himself and to submit and listen to God's word. To take it in would have saved his life. But he did not. He was quick to speak, quick to anger. So he had Micaiah thrown in prison fed bread and water until the king would return safely. And Micaiah said back to him, and he said, if you indeed return safely, then the Lord has not spoken to me. So Ahab went off to battle, and long story short, that's when the king, this wicked king, finally perished, just as foreseen. And the same eternal consequences await all those who reject God's truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news, these are words of life. The Savior has come and he's died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose to pay for our sins, to give us new life. You, you need to accept this report. Believe this message. Turn to Christ. Yes, it spells the end of your sin and your flesh doesn't want this, but be a slave to your sin no longer. Confess Christ as your Lord and master and you will live and you will grow. You know, Jesus said in John 8, 31, 32, he said to those who were believing in him, he said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. What does a true disciple look like? It's not enough to hear the word once, but the true disciple continues in Christ's word forever then they will know freedom from sin and from death. But right after that, though, Jesus spoke to those Jews who were not believing in him. And he says in verse 37, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but 
You seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. The true disciple and the false disciple, they're always told apart by how they receive God's word, how they react and respond to the word of Christ. Does it have a place in you or not? You know, if Christ were on earth today, there would be countless people who would conspire together and kill him all over again. In fact, I'm sure it would happen a lot quicker than three years if it were today. But how will you respond to him, though? How will you react to his words? I pray with James, you heed this message. Be convicted of the nature of a true disciple, one who receives the word of truth. And again, not just once. We're not talking about raising your hand or praying the sinner's prayer one time at, at an event. We're talking about daily, continually thereafter, abiding in the word of Christ. Or you, it has a place in you every day. This is the one who proves they have been set free from sin. This is the one who displays they really follow Christ. And this is the one who will, in that day, enter into the joy of their master. And I pray this is you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we... We do make this our prayer, that you convict us this morning and that we wouldn't turn away even from the conviction of this own message, your own message from the word of truth that we need to always hear and receive the word of truth. Lord, you do so much by your word. You made the heavens and the earth by your word. You've given us your word written down to know you. You sent Christ who came as the incarnate word. You bring us to new life by the word. You sanctify us by the word. Lord, we, we need your word and we need to be open to it, to not turn away even when it, it hurts or it's convicting, it challenges us. That just means it's working and that we need to, Lord. So I pray that, that we are, truly live up to our name as Berean Bible Church. And we, we follow our namesake and we receive your word with gladness, no matter what. That we are those who simply are, are men and women of the book. By this, we will live and we will flourish. We will grow and we'll have joy as we abide in Christ. We will be free from sin and death and, and have him who is the word. He's our, our treasure and we only gain that by the word. So convict us, even now, even this morning, and may we leave a stronger attachment to your word, to never turn it away, to always allow it to do its work in our lives, all for your glory and our own benefit, Lord. Convict us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.